I sure enjoy it. This is, I think, our seventh uh, Youth Sunday since I've been here. And every year, uh, I stress a little, not sure if it's going to all come together, but it, sure enough. And I, I love how uh, the guys all kind of get up and wing it, and the girls all write out their prayers and are all set and uh, really learn a lot about the students. And uh, uh, I've really enjoyed, especially uh, the musicians. We uh, actually, this band has been together for a couple months now. We didn't just throw this together for this morning because we led, we led the music at a retreat a couple weeks ago with um, a bunch of PCA churches from all over Virginia down at the Young Life Camp Rockbridge. And so we were, able, we were the like, camp retreat band for all four sessions. And uh, i tell you what, teenagers at this point, if they're just in tune, is a good thing. But uh, these guys are really coming along, learning their instruments. And uh, it's uh, fun for me to use both my, I'm the pastor of youth and worship, and I love combining those. So that's been neat to see. Um, I promised uh, Margaret Barber that I would get in a little plug before I started the sermon. We still need Sunday school teachers for the summer. Uh, we want to give the regular teachers the year off. This is a light, easy commitment. Uh, 10 or 12 weeks, something like that. Doesn't start till late in June, and it ends by Labor Day. Uh, we need four teachers, a toddler teacher, a fifth grade teacher, and two teachers for the middle school. Now look at some of these middle schoolers. You guys stand up, turn around. How can you say no to that? Good? So this is Margaret down here. Come find her. Tell her you want to do this. So. All right, good. Thank you. Sermon. You have, uh, everybody got an outline? Good. You know, it's been a year. I have not preached since last youth Sunday. I just kind of was thinking about that this week. That's right. I used to preach six or eight times a year. But it's good because we have excellent preachers here. And I've got lots of other things to do. So, but I'm excited to bring the word of God to you this morning. Um, I'll give you a little intro. I know there are some Shakespeare fans here. And uh, I was into Shakespeare for a while in college. I uh, haven't read anything recently, but uh, I know that there are some real literature folks, a literature professor, in fact. Uh, but most of you will recognize the most famous uh, lines from Shakespeare. I've kind of pulled the top three I think that you would recognize. It would be Romeo, Romeo. Good, you've heard that one. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. You know that one. And to be or not to be. That is the question. You know the whole thing? <laughs> so I wanted, I was just thinking about that uh, passage, that third one. I want to open with that. Uh, if you remember the play Hamlet, it's Hamlet's soliloquy. Right? It's what's going on in his mind uh, a little ways into the play. And what's happened is his dad has died, the king of Denmark, um, and he's, Hamlet's pretty sure he was murdered by his uncle. But Hamlet is uh, in despair. He is uh, frozen in inaction, and he is 
not able to take revenge at this point. And in fact, this, the soliloquy happens when he's contemplating suicide, right? And so he's asking, he's battling in his mind whether there's more honor in ending your life than in persevering through life and all of its heartaches, all of its troubles. I mean, to him, life holds nothing. And so he's genuinely asking the question. But then a thought comes to him that makes him reconsider, gives him pause. He says, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. In other words, what if death is worse than life? I mean, it's one thing if death is just ceasing to exist. And it's the end of our human troubles. It's another thing if there are experiences in death, death that are worse than life. Why rush to what might be a nightmare? Shakespeare has placed these words, these thoughts into the, the mind, the heart, uh, the words of a character who has no idea what comes after life. And he's making his choices out of ignorance and fear. But there's a parallel passage in Paul's letter to the Philippians that asks that same question, to be or not to be, to live or to die. Which should we choose? Which should he choose? And Paul tosses that question around in this passage that we're going to read, as well as some other questions related to his circumstance in life, his situation near the end of his life. And I've asked Galadriel to read Philippians 1, verses 12 through 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thanks, Gladriel. 
Usually when we preach at this church, we preach through an entire book. And uh, we just started 1 Thessalonians, so you may be wondering where I'm going. Um, Dave likes to give me the open week for Youth Sunday. I choose whatever I want. And I've been spending a lot of time in, in Paul's letters recently. Uh, we did Colossians at Youth Group last week, a bit from that. and uh, We actually uh, had a sermon on the first 11 verses in Philippians back in December. So to set up today, I want to give you a little context. This is, Philippians is one of Paul's uh, jail epistles, written most likely uh, in Rome when he was in prison there. Uh, it's about early 60s A.D. It's late in Paul's ministry. Uh, it's about 25 years after he uh, became a Christian. So he's gone through uh, most of what we know of his life. Uh, he's done all the major missionary journeys. He's planted churches all over. The whole book of Acts has happened, and now he's nearing the end of his life. And in this passage, Paul is addressing three fears that the Philippians had. And you can see he kind of works his way through them. And we're going to work through them as well this morning. The first one is that because Paul is in prison, the gospel must not be getting out. His ministry, the gospel, preaching that he's part of, is being impeded and stopped. Paul deals with that. Number two, there were other Christians that were hurting Paul's reputation and hurting the church. Paul speaks to that as well. And finally, they're afraid that at the end of Paul's imprisonment, if he's executed, that that would be a tragedy. It would be difficult to work past that with the early struggling church. So I'm gonna take these uh, section at a time. I think in most of our English Bibles, they're a handy paragraph apiece. It's not how the original was written, but uh, we're gonna split it up. The first Three verses, verses 12 through 14. Let me read them again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's speaking, of course, of his imprisonment. It's advancing the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Here, Paul's point of view is amazing. That he could have been out doing any number of things. Outside the walls of this prison, we know that he was bold to go to the synagogues and speak and debate, win new converts. He was very active in discipling young leaders, starting churches, um, counseling them through. Paul's life was one of constant action and motion. And here he is, confined to a jail cell. And yet he sees this as a blessing. We know that from Acts, the book of Acts, and from Paul's other letters, that he had a great desire to get to Rome. And now he's here, maybe in a different way than he thought, than he had planned, but he's here. 
And he says, I can see God's hand in this. Imagine Paul trying to uh, win the government of Rome, win some of the important people. Uh, imagine him walking up to the Senate or walking up to the imperial sold the soldiers there. Probably would have had a lot of doors slammed in his face. Uh, Paul usually went straight to the synagogues, straight to debating the Jews and uh, encouraging the Christians there and starting the church. Um, but here, what a great way to reach the uh, imperial soldiers, the Roman centurions. He's most likely chained to one 24 hours a day. And those, those soldiers are hearing the gospel and it's spreading throughout the guard and probably throughout the government. This, this man, Paul, is preaching about that guy 25, 30 years ago who died. His cause is still going. And those guards are hearing about it whether they want to or not. And Paul's excited. I remember hearing a, a speaker, uh, he said, I love to take plane rides. And I love to sit in the middle seat. Because the person on the window seat in the aisle, they're going to hear the gospel before we land. And I see... I see Paul taking advantage of where he is. His chains have affected unbelievers all around him. But we see also that his chains have affected the believers. The Christians who know that he's in prison, rather than becoming scared and ashamed of their faith, have become emboldened. Persecution is almost always meant to silence the church. But it usually has the opposite effect. When we look at Christians who are sold out, who will live and die and suffer for Jesus, we want to buy into something that important. We want to live our lives for something great. So I hope we see the examples of faithful men and women and are encouraged. Apparently, Paul believes Romans 8.28, which is a good thing since he wrote it. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I mean, it's one thing to write that, to teach that. It's another thing to live it, to cling to it, in your darkest days. Paul knows that his circumstances are under the sovereign control of his heavenly father who has not fallen asleep at the wheel. He hasn't forgotten about his missionary, his church planter. You may say, well, surely Paul's just putting a good face on, on his situation. Maybe Paul's a first century spin doctor so he's got to spin this so that the church doesn't get discouraged. But does he believe it? I believe with all my heart that Paul knows that God has his life in his hand and is sovereignly controlling the events, directing his life. My father was in youth ministry when he was in his 20s, um, before he got demoted to being a head pastor. And uh, 
It's a demotion. He told me a story about one of his experiences in youth ministry. Uh, He used to love to go to camp every summer. And he would take a whole slew of kids, and the way that he really felt like he was ministering to these kids the best, I mean, they had good programming and songs and speaker and all that, I'm sure, but during free time, he would run around and play basketball and tackle football and just play as much with the kids. He'd, He'd never let them beat him, but he'd be in there, and he felt like that was great ministry. Um, I was like, I can't relate at all. But uh, so that was how my dad approached camp every year. But one year he had back surgery and he couldn't do any of that. He had to sit by the side of the pool and just stick his feet in and watch during free time. And he said it was amazing because the kids one by one would just kind of make their way over, sit down and start talking to him. He said he had more significant conversations that week of camp than ever, than any of his other camp experiences. And I had a real similar experience a couple weeks ago when we went on that uh, high school retreat. I was getting sicker and sicker as the week went on, and to lay down, ended up having a great conversation um, that I would have never had if I was rock climbing and playing basketball like I usually do when I go to Rockbridge. So in a small way, um, I see a, a parallel to Paul's situation. Uh, we, we plan our lives, we plan our circumstances, even our ministries one way, and when they're changed, when God moves us to a different uh, circumstance, we need to look for how we can make the most of that. Uh, maybe you feel imprisoned in your life somehow. Maybe you had plans that haven't taken off yet, that you got fired or turned down for a career. Maybe people in your life have betrayed you, abandoned you. There's a lot we face in this life. And we can identify with Paul in one sense. So I guess the question is, how do we handle that? Are we bitter? Are we intent on focusing on our own pain and frustration? And and certainly I'm not downplaying the fact that we need to grieve through things and work through and question, cry out to God. But ultimately we come to a place where we choose how we're gonna, whether we're gonna accept where we are or not. Are we gonna continue to say, God, if you're good, if you love me, if you're real, You're going to give me what I want, or you're going to heal me or my loved one, or we're going to say, I guess this is where you've got me, Lord, and I can't wait to see how Christ is honored through this. The next few verses that Paul works through shows the kingdom mindset that Paul has verses 15 through 18. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict, afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? 
only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul knows that there are evangelists, teachers out there. The, the rumors have come to him, and he recognizes, and he says, Philippians, I understand that there are people out there who are using my circumstances, my situation, to uh, work against me and to build themselves up. They, they see themselves as rivals for whatever reason. Some commentators say, well, these are, these are probably the false preachers. Uh, Paul had to deal constantly with the, the Judaizers who said you have to, to become a Christian, you also have to become a Jew and submit yourself to all those laws. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Because in Paul's other letters, he is quick to rebuke those uh, parties. And he says, that's a different gospel. And when people are false teachers proclaiming a false gospel, Paul lets people know, stay away from those guys. That's not what he's saying here. And so I think we can be sure that these guys are actually preaching a sound gospel. They are preaching Christ. They are being faithful to Christ, even if somewhat insincerely. So they're being faithful to Christ, even as they're being bad brothers, sisters to Paul. Uh, There may be some implication that they are trashing Paul's reputation, that they're saying, oh, you know, everybody thinks Paul's so great, what's he doing in prison? You know, he's not blessed. We're the ones out here doing the work. We're the ones with God's blessing. Maybe they saw their congregations, maybe their house churches, Bible studies, whatever it is, as, as competition. And so the more they can put him down, the better they look. And ultimately, Paul recognizes that people in ministry have mixed motives. And I think we can see that today. And I don't just mean professional ministers. I mean all of you as ministers of the gospel. We, we approach it. We all have mixed motives for why we uh, engage in ministry, why we're involved in this church, how we follow Christ. I'm the first one to admit that uh, my pride, my ambition, all those things, jealousy, are all mixed up with sincerely honoring God and wanting to share his word. But that doesn't necessarily invalidate their message and their ministry, Paul says. I think he would say that ultimately these guys are going to have to stand before God and answer for how they've treated him, how they've acted. But for Paul, where he is, if Christ is being preached... He will rejoice. So I want to ask you a question this morning. How do you feel uh, when you hear about other churches, ministries, when they are blessed or when they're suffering, when when something bad happens to them? Because it's very easy. I know I recognize in my own heart, I say, oh, that's too bad that that church is laying off people or having difficulties or some sin issue 
And then that's quickly followed by, oh, cool, maybe people will come to our church and make us look better. And I think Paul would rebuke me quickly for that thinking. If churches preach the gospel, we should pray for them, rejoice with their success. Ultimately, do we sing, you know the song we sing, it's all about you, Jesus, for your glory and your fame. Our ministries show that, reflect that. Can we have a truly kingdom mindset? Uh, I read a story this week about two of the spiritual giants of the 1800s, George Whitfield and John Wesley. They were contemporaries, uh, but not ones that necessarily agreed on all their doctrine. They didn't minister together. Uh, and I think people wondered how they saw each other. And so one, some, one day, George Whitfield was asked, Do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? No, I do not. Really? Then you don't think Wesley's a converted man? Of course he's a converted man. But I don't expect to see him in heaven. He's can, because he'll be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away that I will not be able to see him. I'm not sure that's how heaven works, but uh, I don't think he meant that very literally anyway, I think. But I love the humility in that. He said, maybe I don't agree with everything that John Wesley says and does, but he is a brother in Christ and a godly man. Kingdom mindset. We learn from Paul. Finally, the last section that Paul works through is uh, really what he's been working up to. And, and we've heard his, how he views his circumstances. Now we, we see really the motivation for his life. Paul's going to pour out his heart and say, this is what it comes down to. So let me read it again. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So did you follow Paul's train of thought there? He says, your prayers, the help of the Spirit, I will be delivered. That word for deliverance, uh, soteria in Greek, can mean physical deliverance. Uh, it can mean a spiritual deliverance, salvation. Um, it can also mean kind of a vindication, 
So we get this idea that Paul is saying, I'm, I'll be vindicated whether before a human court, a Roman court, or the heavenly court. And I think there, there's a lot going on here, a little, even deeper than just whether Paul's going to be released from prison or not. Um, get it. There's a real sense that in these verses, Paul is saying that he's coming to the end of his life, and he wants to show what his life has been about. And I hear, just in these words, in these verses, I hear echoes of other phrases from Paul's letters. That I run the race in such a way that you receive the prize. Present your life as a living sacrifice. Present yourself as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. All those sound familiar from Paul's other letters. And I think Paul here is saying, I hope my life will be vindicated. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, that Christ will be honored in my body, whether I live, whether I die. I think uh, as he works through then, which he would choose, and I'll get to that, uh, he ultimately says, if I live, I can continue to help you, Philippians. His love just comes through this, and I think he's convinced that he'll make it through. But ultimately, whether I live or die beyond this jail, I want to persevere with integrity and honor Christ in every circumstance. I don't know if you... uh, have seen the message, if you read the message uh, version of the Bible, it's, uh, I don't generally read it, I have it, sometimes it's great, it's a paraphrase, it's not a true translation, so we don't generally preach from it, but I love to just look sometimes at how it translates passages or paraphrases them, um, so I looked this passage up, and I love what the, the author Eugene Peterson does with verses 20 and 21. Here's what he says. Everything happening to me in this jail only serves to make Christ more accurately known, regardless of whether I live or die. They didn't shut me up. They gave me a pulpit. Alive, I'm Christ's messenger. Dead, I'm his bounty. Life versus more life. I can't lose. So then Paul spends some time with Hamlet's question. We're back to the idea that to be or not to be. Life or death. But whereas Hamlet felt that both options were losing propositions and had their problems, their disadvantages, Paul sees both as great options. They both have their advantages. He says, if I continue to minister... I'll bear fruit. I'll be there for you, Philippians and other churches that he's planted. I'll be able to go on ministering, but if I die, that would be even better because I'll be with Jesus. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Maybe you've heard the modern translation of that. 
for the existentialist, life sucks and then you die. I'm sure that's uh, somebody being funny that life doesn't seem to make sense and who knows what happens after that. But we have true hope to cling to. What would happen if we put the things we pursue in the first half of that verse, though? Can we take the idols that we have in our lives and let's see what it looks like when we plug them into that sentence. For to me, to live is money and to die is to leave it all behind. For me, to live is fame, recognition, the praise of men, to die is to be forgotten. For me to live is power. To die is to lose it all. For me to live is sports. And to die is to leave a really fit body behind in a lifetime of watching ESPN. For me to live is to check off my bucket list. And to die is to put that final check but what do I have to show for it, really? Even good things that we can put there to live is to help others, but to die is to not be able to help them anymore and hope that you did enough. If we put anything else in that sentence, we can't get the second half. Death is not gain unless our lives are bound up in Jesus Christ. I, th I think of when Christians have been taken at a young age. Um, I remember Kyle Lake was a pastor in Waco uh, where I went to school, and he had a lot of students from Baylor University went to his, his uh, church, and he was younger than I was, the head pastor. He was uh, electrocuted uh, doing a baptism one Sunday. Um, Keith Green was killed in his early 30s. Rich Mullins in his early 40s. And I just think of, oh, Lord, why did you take them? How many songs we missed out on? How much ministry? And but the Lord has his plans, his purposes. I think of uh, Keith Green's song, I can't wait to get to heaven when you wipe away all my tears. I think he anticipated. He had, I don't think he had a death wish, but he had such a great picture of heaven that he knew that death wouldn't be a tragedy. It would be a celebration. Well, we mourned for his family and those, of, uh, those other young Christian leaders Christians everywhere, we, we mourn for their families, their congregations, but they are celebrating with Jesus. Uh, those of you that have been at the church for a few years remember uh, Lane Hefner, one of our elders. Uh, he used to quote the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one. What's your only comfort in life and death? that I with body and soul both in life and in death 
am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Being bound with our Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that our sins are forgiven, death, Satan has no hold on us. We can live or die knowing that we are secure in Jesus. I realize uh, this sermon is bookended by funerals. Um, We had Cindy's dad died a few weeks ago in the funeral. Now Steve's dad died on Thursday and the funeral's Tuesday. I picked this text out a couple months ago, and so I didn't foresee that, but how timely that we'll be thinking. I think there's a lot of people in this church thinking of life and death right now. And as we sit in funerals, as we honor those, our loved, death of our loved ones, what do you think about? I know that I sit there and think about all the people in my life I'm not ready to see die, but I see, I think, try to think through my life, what God has done, what he's still gonna do, and would I be ready for death if it came? Do I have the perspective that Paul has? That God wants him to, if God wants him to continue in ministry, those will be fruitful years, and he is ready to continue to minister, but if God wants to take him now, he's ready and excited for that. Where, O death, is your sting? Death is not a tragedy for the Christian who knows that his life, her life, belongs to Jesus who saved us. And one day will call us home. When Jesus calls, will you be ready? Are you looking forward to it? Will you submit to his plans and where he has you in your life, looking for ministry opportunities with a kingdom mindset? As the music team comes up for our final song, I've asked Grace Folk to close us in prayer. Would you stand as, as we pray to close and do our final song? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this sermon. Um, please help us to make the great choices of living in Christ or dying in Christ, and just either way, please help us to um, be with Christ. Um, Please help us 
to be like Paul and have integrity and perseverance in Christ when we are having troubles or being persecuted. Um, thank you for this Mother's Day and for our mothers. We love them so much. Thank you for giving them to us, and thank you for Youth Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen.